So on this Sunday morning, there's a long table, longer than your typical kitchen table. Bench on one of the long sides, bench on the other, chair on each side. Eight men sitting around, enjoying breakfast together, enjoying conversation, getting to know one another on a little bit deeper level. Breakfast is wrapping up. Coffee comes back out. Snacks still fill the table. Conversation continues. Conversation that starts surfacy, starts easy, slowly comes down into a different level. Conversation starts to sound like, what's your purpose in life? Why are we here? Not why are they at this table, but why are they here on earth? The men around the table start to look at one another and do some assessments. Here's the strengths I see in you. Here's the strengths I see in you. And it continues to go a little deeper. What are you passionate about? What really drives you? What really motivates you? And at this table, as the hours go by, the conversation continues to go a little below the surface. And those passions and desires and those strengths and those gifts, the conversation starts to go to, and what are your struggles? What's your suffering? And through the hours, the conversation gets deeper and the room filled with emotion. And everybody senses it. And one guy has been doing some talking and they feel that there's this there's a struggle and this suffering that's been going on. And he's been sharing it. But holding back. Not allowing others in. And along these three outsides, the one sitting next to him turns and says, I would be honored to sit here and just cry with you. And it's that comment that has rocked me and has been one of the most profound that anybody's ever said to me. And it's that comment that ultimately drives this morning's conversation. It drives the question, what's my role in a why God world? What's my role when I look around and I see others suffering? What's my responsibility in that? This Sunday morning, there was one in particular guy who played his role to a T. And it came with a simple line, I'd be honored just to sit and cry with you. Let's continue to look at what's our role when we are living in a broken, suffering world. And let's make sense of that through scripture. 
If you want to pull out your Bibles this morning, we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. The ones on the screen, the scripture on the screen, will be out of the NIV version, maybe different than the, than the Bible that you're holding, but those will be up there. Before we hit scripture, the question's posed, well, who's God? What are his characteristics? If we're crying out and saying, why God? Well, who is God? God is the giver of grace and peace. And how do we know that? We're going to read that in verse 2. In the first verse, Paul identifies himself, says, I'm writing this with Timothy. In verse 2, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So a lot of times we skim over that and just think, well, that's kind of a common greeting. He uses something like that in all of the 13 epistles that he writes. Grace and peace, love and peace, mercy, love, those kinds of greetings to you. But there's a key word that I, I think I've often skipped over, and that's that word, from. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. If something is from somebody, I think of a gift. It's got the label on it. It says, to Brian, from God. From God? Grace and peace come from God. Grace, something that we don't deserve. Something that a sinful, fallen human being doesn't deserve. Yet he gives it to us anyway. Peace, the total well-being and security that only God can provide. Why? Because it came from him. The longing that we felt before we gave our lives to Christ. Longing that some feel still who have yet to turn their lives over to Christ. Peace. A transcendent peace that we don't understand, but we long for. And that comes from God. So who is God? He's the giver of grace and peace. Continuing, he's the father of compassion and comfort. Where do we see that? Let's keep reading in verse 3. Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Let's look at those words a little bit. What does compassion look like? Well, compassion, it's a felt need. It's an understanding when you look into somebody's life and understanding where they are and what their struggle is. And you have this sense of connection for them. And with them. When Jesus felt compassion for people, it typically followed with an action. Jesus would feel compassion on them and heal them of leprosy, of blindness, of sickness. When Jesus felt compassion for people, he would teach them. He felt compassion on them and said, oh, I gotta give you this knowledge, I have to give you this information. When he felt compassion, he fed them when they were hungry. When he felt compassion, in Matthew 9, 36 to 38, it'll be on your screen. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So what's his response when he feels compassion? He says this to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. When you have compassion 
for somebody. When God has compassion for us, he sends workers, sends his hands and feet, sends us to those who have a need. Comfort, consoling somebody, encouraging someone. When we look at the Greek word for comfort, it's also used and translated in a couple of different terms throughout the New Testament. Comfort can also be replaced as strengthening or making strong. When God comforts us, he makes us strong. When God comforts us, another word is he helps us. When God comforts us, he makes us brave. So when we look to who is God, we can say he is the God of grace and peace. He is the Father of compassion and comfort. Before we understand our role, we have to understand who God is and his role in this why God suffering world. So, where is God during our suffering? A lot of people ask that, God, where are you? I'm struggling here. Where are you? I don't see you anywhere. Well, God is beside us as Jesus walks with us. God is within us. Those who have turned their lives over to Christ, he left and said, but I'm sending you a comforter. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. He is within us. And what's he doing? He's comforting us. God is beside us, within us, and comforting us. How do we know? Let's continue reading in verse 4. So after the Father of compassion and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles? So who's telling us this? This is Paul. Paul's telling us that God is comforting us in our troubles. There's a story about this whole idea of God comforting us in our troubles that I'd like to share. A terrible storm came into town and local officials sent out an emergency warning that the riverbanks would soon overflow and flood the nearby homes. They ordered everyone in town to evacuate immediately. A faithful Christian man heard the warning and decided to stay, saying to himself, I will trust God, and if I'm in danger, then God will send a divine miracle to save me. The neighbors came by his house and said to him, We're leaving. There is room for you in our car. Please come with us. But the man declined, I have faith that God will save me. As the man stood on his porch watching the water rise up the steps, a man in a canoe paddled by. He called them, Hurry and come into my canoe. The waters are rising quickly. But the man again said, No thanks. God will save me. The floodwaters rose higher, and they started pouring into his living room. The man had to retreat to the second floor. A police motorboat came by and saw him at the window. We will come up and rescue you, they shouted. But the man refused, waving them off. Use your time to save someone else. I have faith in God. The floodwaters rose higher and higher. Man had to climb to his rooftop. A helicopter spotted him and dropped down a rope ladder. A rescue officer came down the ladder and pleaded with the man, Just grab my hand. I can pull you up. But the man still refused, folding his arms tightly to his body. No, thank you. I have God on my side. He will save me. Shortly after, the house broke up. The floodwaters swept the man away, and he drowned. When in heaven, the man stood before God and asked, I put all my faith in you. Why didn't you come and save me? God looked at him and said, Son, I sent you a warning. I sent you a car. I sent a canoe. I sent you a motorboat. 
I sent you a helicopter. What were you looking for? God's comfort doesn't always look the way we want it to. God's comfort doesn't always come in the shape that we think it should. Sometimes we get our own vision of what God's comfort looks like. And sometimes God's comfort comes through somebody in a canoe or a motorboat or a helicopter. God's comfort comes through us. God comforts us in our times of trouble. Why? Why is he doing this? Why is he pouring this out? What's our responsibility in this? What's our role in this? So that we can then comfort others. Verse 4, if we backtrack, it says, God who comforts us in our troubles, key transition, so that. Okay, we've got this God who's comforting us, who's with us, he's beside us, or within us. Why is he doing this? Why is he comforting us in our suffering? We know that there will be suffering in this world. That is a fact, 100% every one of us. So what do we do with that knowledge? We understand that God comes to comfort us so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Which makes me question one thing. Okay, God, if you're telling me you comfort me through your spirit, through your son, through others, okay, and you want me then to go and comfort others, what does that look like? Because I'm not really sure. So the best example that I could find comes in John 11. It comes through when Lazarus is ill and dies. His sisters, Mary and Martha, are looking for Jesus to come and save their brother. So they send word for Jesus to come. And Jesus waits two days. During this time, Lazarus passes away. He takes his two-day journey and arrives there. At this point, I'm only just going to try to put some thoughts together. Mary and Martha have been grieving. They're distraught. They've wanted Jesus to be here. He hasn't shown up yet. So we pick up the story in John chapter 11, verse 20, where Martha starts coming out. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. She replied, I believe that you are the Messiah the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. So what do we make of this? How do we make sense of this? Well, I get this visual image of Martha, distraught, distressed, frantic, running up to Jesus and saying, where were you? There's Lazarus, you could have saved him. And when Jesus meets this storm, when Jesus meets this why God, when Jesus meets this suffering, what's his response? In what we would say today, he gives her Jesus. He gives her a two-second gospel message. 
He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe that? I said, yeah. And she walks away. I get this sense of peace that comes over her. I need that reminder of who you are in the big picture of things. So how do we comfort others from this? We give them Jesus. We share the gospel message with them. We give them something that they need desperately, and that is an understanding that it's our faith in him alone that gives us an eternal relationship with him and eternal life. But I think it means something more than that, and I think it can mean something different than that. So we can get caught up in saying, we need to give people Jesus. Well, what else can giving somebody Jesus look like? How about when they're suffering, coming over and doing a project with them at home? How about bringing them a meal? Maybe it's parents who are struggling and saying, hey, let me take your kids for a while so you guys can maybe have a night out or a night to relax or a night to recover or do whatever you need to do. A friend of mine was just telling me a story. Said a neighbor that he was able to see kind of what was going on. Her husband passed away. Families coming, flooding the place that whole first week. And then it dissipates. There's not a lot of action at the house. So that's his opportunity to come in and walk up, spend time with the neighbor. And as he's talking, and as they're, she's kind of sharing what happened, he's looking around the house, and he realizes in the kitchen, there is just a heaping mess of stuff that looks like there's been a party for about 30 people for seven days, and nobody did anything to clean it up. He said it was disgusting, stuff was moldy, it was, just had this awful smell to it. So at some point through the conversation, it breaks, and she starts kind of tending to her needs. And so he goes in and spends hours cleaning the kitchen, doing all the dishes, Lysoling, defecting everything that he can possibly do. Comes back, has a couple other exchanges, and leaves. Still casual conversations over the, you know, the next year or so. She comes back and talks to him. One random day, said, hey, you remember last year when, when my husband passed away? Well, yeah, I remember that. I said, do you remember coming over and cleaning my kitchen for me? I, I guess. Not, not really, but I, I imagine that happened. She said, well, you did. And every time that I was going in there, I'd see this heaping mess, and I would just be like, I'm overwhelmed. I don't even know what to do with that. And I would walk away. And it was just weighing on me. It was just one more thing that was weighing me down. She said, I can honestly tell you, that was the nicest thing anybody could have ever done for me at that point because that's exactly what I needed. Sharing Jesus with somebody in a very practical way. Just cleaning up dishes and cleaning up a kitchen. What happens in the rest of the story? Mary comes in. Same level of distraughtness. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus saw, was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. 
There was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. So why this? What's going on here? Another time, she comes in distraught. She's upset, thinking, Jesus, you should have saved my brother. He says one thing. Where have you laid him? They're outside of the city. They still have to make their journey to the tomb. What else did he say through that whole time? Nothing. What did he do? He walked with his friend and cried with her. That's it. He didn't have the right thing to say. He didn't push the easy button and fix it. He didn't do anything spectacular. All he did was walk and cry with his friend who was grieving and hurting. What do we take from that? Well, how do we respond in situations? I think if you're anything like me, maybe some of you guys especially, we have this natural tendency like we want to fix stuff. Something's broken, we've got to fix it. You've got a question, we've got to find the answer. You're hurting, we want to help. So we tend to try to do stuff. And if you're anything like me, you're like, I don't know, I don't have the perfect thing to say. I don't know how to fix this. I don't have the answer. And that can lead to inaction. I don't know what to tell her, so I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to stay away because I don't know how to get into that mess. Or we do go over there and we talk to somebody for a while and I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry you're dealing with this. Let me know if you need something. Anybody guilty of that statement? I mean guilty of it. I think I've said it far too many times. Hey, let me know if you need something. I'm there for you. Has anybody ever gotten that call? It says, hey, Brian, remember when you said, let me know if you need something? Because I'm really suffering right now, and here's what I need. I haven't. So what's our response to that? Well, if we take Jesus' plan, we give Jesus in a practical way. Sometimes that's through the gospel and sometimes it's just through action. And we just come alongside the suffering person. Walk along with him. Don't say anything and just cry with him. That's all Mary needed. And if we do that, if we're like my friend who was in the kitchen or cleaned the kitchen, he just got there. said, I'm just going to hang out and see what needs to be done because our presence is what's going to give us the idea of what's going on. Hurting people, suffering people, don't always know what they need. They need something, but they don't know what that is yet because they're just trying to figure it out. But if we inject ourselves into their lives without having to know all the answers, without having to be the Mr. Fix-It and just be there, that's half the battle right there. That's what our role can be. So how do we comfort others? We give them Jesus and we give them ourselves. Let's continue with Paul's words in verse 5. He says, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. So Paul suffered immensely. But yet he's saying here, just as we share in the suffering, our comfort comes through Christ. I just want to share with you what Paul's sufferings were. If we flip over a couple chapters to chapter 11, in verses 23 through 28, we get a picture of that. So Paul says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times shipwrecked. 
I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Paul suffered. Paul suffered. And yet here he is in Scripture saying, God, we need to praise God. Why? Because he is the God of grace, the God of peace, and he comforts us and is compassionate towards us. In 6, verse 6, he continues, If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. Now, he's talking about him and Timothy. If we are distressed, it's for you, Corinthians. He's also saying, if we are distressed, it's for you, faith churchians. He's also telling us that if we are reading this as well, whatever stress you are under, it's about more than just you. It's about one another. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. So here he is saying, we suffer the same. Paul, who has been beaten and left for dead multiple times, all sorts of stuff happening to him, says, you and me, all of us, suffer the same. There is no comparing. And what I think he's trying to do here is level the playing field for us. Because here, if anybody else has ever thought this before, man, I'm going through some rough stuff. But it's not as bad as that guy. It's not as bad as what she's got going on. So I can't tell anybody about it. That's just, that's just pity stuff. I mean, that guy's got it way worse, so how am I ever going to say anything to anybody? I'm just going to feel foolish. It's like, no, 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 no. We are all suffering the same. We are all suffering in some way. I went to a speaker this last week, Tiger McLoon, over at LifeFest, and he was detailing his suffering and how to make sense of it. And he said, I've come up with a definition of suffering for myself, and I'd like to share it with you guys. I thought it was pretty, pretty interesting. He said, suffering is the gap between what we wish our life was like and what it actually is like. Suffering is that gap between what we wish life had given us and what life has actually given us. He said, all filled out with that gap, is our suffering, whatever that is for each and every one of us. And furthermore, in that gap is where we find God. Because if everything's all rosy, there is no need for a gap and no need for a Savior. Paul's suffering helped him grow closer to God. Paul's suffering brought him closer there so he could be better lifting up other people. Let's continue in 7. Paul says, And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. What's he saying here? We need to do this together. He's telling the Corinthians, we need to all do this together. We're supposed to share in each other's joy. We're supposed to share in each other's comfort. We're supposed to share in each other's sufferings. And this whole idea of what's my role in this the whole idea of what's my responsibility in a suffering world, what's my responsibility in a why God world is to build one another up, is to continue to encourage one another, is to come alongside somebody during their suffering. 
we're going to watch a video clip from the 1992 Olympics. A man by the name of Derek Redmond. He was a British star athlete in the 400-meter dash. He was one of the few guys that they figured could have a shot at winning gold in the 400-meter dash at the Olympics. Been training for years for this moment. And if anybody has ever known the world of track, and you ever watched a sprinter, as they're going down the backstretch, and if you ever see them go like this, you know that's not a good thing. In an interview that I watched of him after, he said, you know what, I heard a pop. Two strides later, I figured it out, what that was. Hamstring was torn, gone. So his gap between what he wanted life to give him and what life was currently giving him was pretty significant at that time. And there was his suffering. And then we get to watch what unfolds after. And what we watch unfold after is multiple people coming to his aid. And in, in interviews after he said, you know what, I didn't want help because I needed to do this by myself. I need to finish this race on my own no matter what. Then about 100 meters left, you get to the home stretch, and you'll see a guy coming out. He kind of pushes past security, pushes past the people who are supposed to stop this. And this guy comes up to Derek Redmond. And at first, Derek's almost kind of like another one to push away. And he looks and notices who it is. It's his dad, who's on the track. And they have an exchange. And that exchange goes like this. Dad says, you don't have to do this. Derek said, yes, I do. So Dad's comment back says, well then, we're going to finish this together. I think that's our role in a why God role, in a why God world. He left the track with 65,000 people standing in ovation. But not his dreams, not what he had in store for life. And he was suffering. And we get this perfect illustration. And, and we see, even in him, the, the fight. I need to do this on my own. And oftentimes, maybe guys especially, I don't think it's limited to us though, we have this idea that we need to keep this stuff and be a rock. We've got this idea that we need to do this on our own. It's up to us. I've got to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I've got to fight through this. I've got to show I'm independent and strong. And what we're really showing is that we're full of pride. As he continued to make his way around and hobble, he was going to grit it out. And when he had somebody just come and be in his presence and take his arm and wrap it around him and saw it was a loving, caring individual, his father, he was a mess. And that's what he needed. He didn't need to tough it out on his own. He needed somebody just to come into his life and just cry with him, just be a presence in his life. It's kind of what Jesus shared with Mary and Martha. With Martha, it was a practical way to show Jesus. I'm going to come alongside of you, just like Mary. We don't have to talk a lot. I'm just going to do this with you. And we're going to figure it out as we go. I like how verse 7 ended by saying, here's our hope. I'm firm in my hope with you because here's my hope. Here's our hope. Our hope doesn't rest in this world. Our hope lies with a resurrected king. Our hope lies 
because we have a God who is the giver of grace and peace. Because we have a heavenly Father who is compassionate towards each and every one of us and wants to comfort us in our weakest and most struggling moments. But not only that, he wants us to do that also. He wants us to be open enough to accept it. And he wants us to know our role in this world. And that role includes just putting ourselves into other people's lives and being present during the suffering. Not needing to say anything. Not needing to fix everything. But just being you. Not saying, hey, let me know if you need something. But being there so that we, you know exactly what they need. 